This is The Guardian. Finding your perfect home was hard, but thanks to Burrow, furnishing it has never been easier. Burrow's easy-to-assemble modular sofas and sectionals are made from premium, durable materials, including stain and scratch-resistant fabrics. So they're not just comfortable and stylish, they're built to last. Plus, every single Burrow order ships free right to your door. Right now, get 15% off your first order at burrow.com slash ACAST. That's 15% off at burrow.com slash ACAST. Hello and welcome to the Guardian Football Weekly. Slightly trickier to record a pod about the weekend's football when there wasn't any football at the weekend. Well, not in the UK at least, as the game from the Premier League all the way down to grassroots was postponed as a mark of respect after the death of Queen Elizabeth II. Was it the right call, despite the fact other sports went ahead? Was it because of football's obsession with commemoration or because the authorities don't trust match-going fans to behave? There's also time to open the mailbag to discuss Chelsea, counter-attacks, faking injury, taking the ball into the corner, whether Ralph Hasenhutl is good and if Barry wants to give some time to the Europa League openers when he categorically said we wouldn't on Thursday. All that, people thanking Wilson for stopping in the street, how Mark Langdon says hyperbole, plus your questions, and that's today's Guardian Football Weekly. On the panel today, Jonathan Wilson, hello. Morning, how are you doing? I'm very well, thank you. Ed Ahrens, nice to see you. Hi, Max. Hello, Barry Glendenning. Hello, Max. So Bob says, having spent a weekend not going to the football, which meant seeing more of my children, not drinking or gambling, not looking constantly at scores on my phone and generally feeling less stressed and anxious, is it time that something is done to ensure that it never happens again? Um, so the latest on the postponements, the National League fixtures will go ahead from today, Monday, uh, all the English, Welsh, Northern Irish football, senior Scottish football was postponed at the weekend, all of grassroots football, all of kids football. Uh, midweek EFL fixtures are expected to go ahead. The EFL is yet to issue a statement. The Premier League is yet to make an announcement about the games to be played between the 16th and 18th of September, i.e. the weekend coming. Some matches could be affected by a lack of resources, such as policing. Issues will be reviewed on a game-by-game basis. Rangers Champions League game with Napoli has been put back 24 hours. Um, There'll be no away fans or away fans will not be authorised at Wednesday's game or at Napoli's home meeting with Rangers on the 26th of October. Nat says, should the football have been postponed? Barry? Uh, In a word, no. I don't think so. On a personal level, I must say I quite enjoyed the unexpected break and got to watch Shane Lowry win, win the golf, got to watch the cricket which they managed to balls that up as well last night by taking the players off with bad light when there was no need for it and watched a bit of Grand Prix racing. So that was good. But I think there are a lot of people high up in the Premier League who are very well paid to occasionally make decisions and they often get these decisions wrong. And this was one of them showed a lack of concern for match-going fans, which we've long known is a thing. And I think, you know, I'm just parroting what everyone else has said. I think football fans would have enjoyed the the match-going experience. They could have paid tribute to the Queen, had the two-minute silence or whatever, worn the black armbands, and possibly some fans would have misbehaved, but that's a... They often do. It's it's not a reflection, really, on, on everyone. It's just there's a few bad apples... So I, I think it was a, a misstep by the Premier League, but not an entirely unexpected one. 
There's an interesting article by Jason Stockwood, who's a joint majority shareholder of Grimsby Town uh, in The Guardian. And he said, I genuinely sympathise with those in power at the associations that run our national game. It's an impossible decision in an age of performative morality where everyone is rightly frightened of being out of step or making an inflammatory decision for fear of adverse reactions on social media. While I'm sure everyone was doing their best with a time-sensitive decision, one of the primary motivations would have been doubtless that no one wants to be on the back end of a backlash against a lack of sensitivity. I wondered that, Ed. I wondered if, you know, lots of... There is such a race to grieve if anyone of note passes away on social media and so many people within the game um you know desperate to sort of show how sad they are and then those same people annoyed that the authorities have postponed football when they must be looking at what people are saying about the queen for example yeah i think i don't know why but in football's case i just i i knew that it would be that the program would be cancelled i didn't i didn't think it would go as far as grassroots football being cancelled and you know like uh, this is really important stage of the season for grassroots football because it's the last week before the the, the schedule begins next week so we, for instance my team we were about we were supposed to have our last friendly of the season so I, I think it was that was that was obviously a step too far I, I expected the games to be called off not though I'm saying that I agreed with agree with it at all but um, yeah there was just a sort of a sense of inevitability I think it was down to a lot of the uh, of it was down to trust of, of football fans misbehaving a little bit. I, you know, I think that there was, they were worried about how some fans might have, you know, not respected the Queen. And um, yeah, I think that was that was the main reason that, that they did it partly. I mean, if you look at the other sports, the way that they reacted, that was it, it really put football, you know, they isolated football completely. Then it, it, cricket had 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 a day off, and then and people were able to pay their respects with, with the national anthem. That was a real, really poignant moment, wasn't it, on the Saturday morning when they came out with the black armbands. Um, and obviously the, the problem for football is going to be next weekend as well with the funeral and all the arrangements. And it seems unlikely, especially some of the big games in London, that they're going to go ahead and it's going to cause massive, massive headaches down the line because of the congested uh, nature of the season. So it's difficult to see... What they're going to do, I think this week there's going to be a lot of efforts to try and get at least some of the games on. But, you know, I'm, I'm really quite doubtful that's going to happen. The thing is, Wilson, like, because other sports had made their decisions, it, it, it gave football the opportunity to follow that lead. It seems... I don't, I don't disagree with anything that Ed said, that, that it sort of felt inevitable. But it did seem like, you know, they didn't have to take the lead on this even. I don't know how they... they, they you know, they didn't realise that... You know, cricket and and rugby, and then you know racing, albeit not till Sunday. The Great North won on Sunday, but they were going ahead. So I, I don't know what football thinks it gained by doing, it. and particularly, you know, I, I I get there could be issues of of policing resources, and if that is the case, well, there's not much you can do. But to stop grassroots football just seems nonsense. Um, and I just I mean, I was at the Oval on Thursday. It was pretty evident pretty early that the Queen's death was imminent. Uh, and I was sort of thinking, this is actually going to be a really, and I, I say this as somebody who would absolutely class himself as a Republican, this is going to be a really poignant moment, either when there's an announcement of the tannoy or when the, the flags on the pavilion are lowered to half-mast. And sort of thinking, you know, there's not many moments of absolute national unity where pretty much everybody in the country is is interested in this detail, is interested in this 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 piece of news. And, and sporting events are probably the... The, you know the, the time when we get that so in some ways being in a sporting stadium when it happened 
would have been incredibly moving and appropriate. And then as it turned out, I was in a, I was in a Pret on Vauxhall Bridge when I found out at 24 minutes past six or whenever it was. But but that that sense of sort of uh, of togetherness, I mean, you saw at the West Ham game on on Thursday night how how moving that was with with the singing of the anthem, and everybody could have had that on on the Saturday and the Sunday. It, it could have been the singing of the of the anthem and, and putting the word King in there. The first time you do that will be a moment you'll remember. And I think every, yeah, everybody having that together in football stadiums could have been an incredibly moving moment, and instead that's sort of been been frittered away and I, I, I you know, so my instinct is that, that, that you're right that it is a fear of fan behavior but none of the FA briefings have said that which I, I, I think it's it's odd that even off the record they're, they're not they're not saying that so as I say I, instinctively I think that probably is the case but that, that that has not been mentioned at all. To be fair Richard Keyes did say it was the right thing and anyone who thinks it isn't is wrong and the other sports should be ashamed uh, for going ahead um, Phil says, did football's obsession with over-commemorating everything, ex-players, Poppy Day, month, etc., I mean, there was no way of making a bigger deal about the Queen than postponing. Um, will this and the World Cup lead to commemoration congestion later in the season? I mean, there is a kernel of truth to that, Barry, isn't there? That you can't, any, any sort of isolated minutes applause, of course you can't say, well, this is a bad idea because they're all incredibly worthy. But I wonder if football, I don't know if it's different to other sports or more than other sports, but do you think there's a kernel of truth in what Phil says? I think there's a terror in, say, the Premier League or the FA of, and it's basically, what, what, will we upset the Daily Mail? You know, will the Daily Mail be outraged if we don't cancel football? And the Daily Mail may well have been outraged, but I'm just not sure why everyone's so hung up on what the Daily Mail think. But football does have a habit of being mawkish, but I don't, you know, being upset because the Queen's dead, that's that's not mawkish. There, there are people who are genuinely grief-stricken. And I just think this would have been a brilliant opportunity for the, you know people to, to be sad together. What's the, you know, were we all supposed to sit at home and be sad on our own? I'm sure people just did something else. <laughs> watch the cricket, watch the racing, whatever. Uh, so, yeah, it's, it's, I suspect that very soon after they made the decision, the Premier League realised they'd made the wrong one, but it was too late to change their minds. Yeah, in in um, nine fourteen, uh, football went ahead for the, the fourteen fifteen season happened, and football got absolutely hammered for that. And it's almost like ever since they've been desperate never to make the same mistake again. So nine thirty nine, football was cancelled. Very early in September, so it's three games into that season. And football realised then it had made a terrible mistake because two weeks later, it started organising regional leagues because they had to fill the gap. And I, I sort of feel that since 1914, it's sort of ingrained in the DNA of the FA that we must never make that mistake again. We must always get ahead of this. They did play in 52-53, you know, the last time it's happened. So I think in 36, a handful of games were postponed, but not the full programme. I, I guess the slight difference there is uh, that it was, uh, I think, five days after in 36 and three days after in, in 52. But but yes, that, you know, that, that that example is there. I mean, I, I guess we are sort of, yeah, the, the, the nature of media now is that, that we are sort of more concerned about that. But I think the FA made the same mistake. I mean, it seems an absurd comparison, but with the sacking of Sam Allardyce. 
that they were terrified of Amelia Ferrore and on the basis of some very, very flimsy allegations that didn't really amount to much, they, they acted and you know, forced him into resignation when the only real potential issue was it was a media storm rather than anything genuinely untoward. It does seem mind-boggling that they hadn't planned for this eventuality. The Queen was 96 years old. Her death was imminent at some point, and it's amazing that they're having to have a meeting on Friday, the day after her death, to, to figure out what to do. They should have had a plan in place. They could have asked her, you know, what what would you like us to do, Your Majesty? So it, it's just, you, you kind of always assume people in these positions of authority know what they're, what they're doing, and it, it's, it's quite astonishing how often they, they're just winging it. I can imagine there's going to be plenty of backtracking now over the next, you know, when the, the next games do take place, there'll be lavish, you know, tributes to the Queen, probably, you know, stretching into the poppy season. So, uh, you know, they'll, they'll be desperate to make up for it because, you know, everybody in hindsight, um, it's it's a big mistake, as you say, and it hasn't looked good for the for football's image, really. I think uh, it's, it's a shame. And, and, and the other issue, I mean, I... I, I... I realise in the moment the issue of the congested fixture list shouldn't be, you know, it's neither here nor there. That's that's the least of the considerations. But it just shows how absurd the schedule is, that there is no wiggle room in it. And and you you have in in a in a schedule, you need to put space in it because things can happen. Bad weather can happen, political events can happen, the football has to be postponed. And if there's no one to postpone it to, well, you know, what do you do? And they must have they must have had that conversation, at, you know, at this meeting with all these people who know what they're doing. As Barry says, you hope someone would have brought that up. Going, the calendar is the calendar is ridiculous. Even without this postponed weekend for the teams in Europe, it's completely, you know, actually that you know for the first time ever, managers might be justified in complaining about a congested fixture list. It is ridiculous. And I also thought, you know, it was only what a week or two ago that we were talking to Nick Ames in Ukraine about how their season is starting and there is a war happening. And obviously it seems futile or trite to compare the two, but you know that, that is a season starting in a country that is at war. And as you all said, and actually I think because football fans are now annoyed that they missed this weekend, and okay, it's only one weekend, there's almost more chance of them not being respectful next weekend because they're annoyed about it, whereas actually this weekend would have been the perfect time. But I don't know. Get lots of questions. Uh, uh, this is from Nag. It says, I really appreciate the panel's view on Eton versus Russell School, um, especially when everyone else's football was called off. I don't know if any of you saw this, that Eton tweeted out that they had a game against uh, a school up north, Russell, that is sort of linked some way to Fleetwood Town and lots of good golfers. Presumably it's some kind of sporting academy. I don't know the results. I don't, I don't know if there was any terrible VAR, but... You know, the optics are bad when Eton are the only football team playing. <laughs> was, was there any crowd trouble? That's what I want to know. <laughs> who knows? It's a very good question. Barry says, who will have the most top flight wins with Charles III in power? Uh, under Queen Victoria, Aston Villa had the most wins. Edward VII, Newcastle United. Under George V, Sunderland. Hey. Edward VIII, Brentford. George VI, Wolverhampton Wanderers. Under Elizabeth II, Manchester United. This is from a, a Grace Note live on... Uh, Twitter. What do you think, Barry? You think Manchester City is a safe bet? Uh, Manchester City. Uh, I presume it's only a matter of time before Newcastle start uh, winning things, given their immense wealth. But 
you have to factor in what what age is Charles? Seventy three. Yeah, I'll go City. Simon says, who will be the first manager to complain about the postponements clogging the schedule later and or complaining about loss of momentum? Ed, who do you reckon? It's got Jürgen Klopp written all over it, hasn't it? Well, uh, yeah, I think I think so, given how it's going for him. Um, I, funnily enough, I just, when you mentioned about no no other days, I, Tuchel, I know we're going to talk about Tuchel and Chelsea later, but he was asked uh, after the game in Zagreb whether he would, you know, Give, give players a day off to reflect on how badly they'd done that night. You know, if that was one of his tactics and he was just like, we haven't got any days off that, you know, they're, they're just to underline the tightness of the schedule. But although they have had the weekend off now, so maybe things are slightly better. There are, of course, lots of people who've given very respectful tributes and um, sort of done wonderful things in the last couple of days. Some less so. Colin says, I expect at least 10 minutes of Wilson's reaction on Wayne Lineker's tribute to the Queen. I don't know if you've seen that, Jonathan, have you? I I mean, I, I think we all should mourn in our own ways. And um, if you think the best way of mourning is some semi-pornographic models dressed as uh, guardsmen, then um, not my kind of thing, but uh, good luck to you. At least Wayne Lineker had, made, had a plan in place. <laughs> 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 Which is more than the Premier League yeah. did. <laughs> it wasn't hastily put together. It might not have been the greatest plan or the most you know, tasteful plan, but it was a plan. Kay says after Ray Parler did a Cobra bomb to mourn the Queen, which I believe is, does he neck a bottle of Cobra and then do a Jaeger bomb afterwards? No, he drops the Jaeger bomb into the, the Cobra. Oh, does he? Oh, how delicious. Um, which which ex-footballer would you like to mark your passing and how? Um, I probably should have given you some warning for this question. I don't know if anyone has one off the bat. Well, we were all very disappointed talking off air before we started recording to learn that contrary to perceived wisdom, Tony Cascarino hadn't actually told TalkSport (laughs) listeners that he'd ordered a Chinese, then heard the Queen died and as a mark of respect threw his Chinese in the (laughs) bin when it arrived. So I, I think should... I shuffle off this mortal coil. I'd like to state for the record, two days mourning would be enough. Okay. Uh, I don't expect anyone to cancel the football, but I would like Tony Cascarino to order a Chinese and then <laughs> throw it in the bin without eating it. Possible. I mean, I, I feel, you know, we know Cas really quite well, Barry, and I really need to go on the record somewhere to apologise to Tony Cascarino for believing it absolutely that it was exactly... <laughs> I totally did too. Yeah. I, I, I was I was absolutely devastated to find out it wasn't. There was there were stories written about it and everything. That's that's how I found out it was. You know, it wasn't it wasn't just hearsay. There were actual stories on actual websites written about it. I can hear Cass saying it in a matter of fact and yet respectful way. That's the that's the, actually the genius of Cass as a broadcaster that he could say <laughs> something that ridiculous and it feel respectful. Um, but it is not true. So, Cass, I apologise to you. Sean Cummins, who made it up, right? The bloke who did uh, Duncan Jenkins, the spoof football, yeah, the, the perspiring football journalist who got in all that trouble. Oh, wasn't it? Okay. Yeah. Oh, I didn't know that. I'd, what was his? What did he do with Liverpool? I don't know that. Oh, uh, so uh, Duncan Jenkins. Do you remember Duncan Jenkins? This sort of spoof. I remember Duncan Jenkins. Yeah, no, he, I don't. He hoodwinked the world yeah, of football is it journalism. All these. Um, uh, Malopopisms and, and, and 
Um, yeah, so you'd say he was a perspiring journalist, not an aspiring journalist, for instance. And he used to stick his head above the parrot. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and he, uh, he, he, he basically found um, on some Liverpool message board somebody who was getting the team, you know, like three minutes before it was officially announced. And so yeah. he, he suddenly started putting out the Liverpool team on Twitter, yeah, before it was officially announced. And Liverpool as a club thought there was a mole in the dressing room. So they then head of communications, uh, Jen Chang, um, you know, went round his house and sort of uh, gave him a pretty severe warning of what the consequences would be, saying, you know, Liverpool fans will put shit through your letterbox if you keep doing this. Um, we're leading to Jen Chang's uh, departure from the club. Blimey. Finally, Alex said, I was listening to Thursday's pod in New Zealand. You said to Barry, we might talk about the Europa League on Monday. And Barry said, we won't. And you replied, well, we might if something big happens. i just just wondering what other world events you have anticipated. Yes, we didn't obviously uh, know. And we haven't looked back at the Europa League because Barry refuses to do so until the knockout stages. Well, you can talk about it if you want, but I, I haven't seen any of it. Well, now the Sarge United lose. That's the only big, big issue, I think. You should write a column about it, Wilson. Um, uh, yeah, and Arsenal uh, played quite well. They won in Zurich and and. I thought they'd signed Mar- Marquinhos, Marquinhos, but they've signed another Marquinhos. They looks like quite a good young prospect. So there's your Europa League review. Uh, we'll be back in a second with part two where we'll talk Chelsea. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass. So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. Finding your perfect home was hard, but thanks to Burrow, furnishing it has never been easier. Burrow's easy-to-assemble modular sofas and sectionals are made from premium, durable materials, including stain and scratch-resistant fabrics. So they're not just comfortable and stylish, they're built to last. Plus, every single Burrow order ships free right to your door. Right now, get 15% off your first order at burrow.com slash ACAST. That's 15% off at burrow.com slash ACAST. It starts the same way. Can I tell you a secret? It would start off with a random girl and... Just say, hey, hun, I'm going to tell you some secret now. Please don't mention it to anybody. But it quickly escalates. It just spread like a wildfire. I still sleep with clubs next to my bed. I didn't know how far this was going to go. People seldom show their true selves online. But one man, he's taken it much further. I was terrified. Who is the cyberstalker behind these messages? He actually said to me, good luck proving it's me. And why is he sending them? Because he became more and more isolated, he just went within himself even further. Do you punish someone for acting out whatever is going on in their mind that we don't understand? And if I could just turn back the clock? From The Guardian, I'm showing Tyler, and this is... Can I tell you a secret? A story about obsession, fear, and the lives we lead online. 
Listen to all episodes from Friday 23rd of September. Welcome to part two of the Guardian Football Weekly. Um, let's do a bit of uh, Chelsea and Graham Potter and Brighton. Um, Richard says, with Chelsea having agreed a deal to take Graham Potter out of his contract to Brighton, is there not a case for a transfer window for managers rather than one club being allowed to take another's mid-season? Uh, we have one for players. Why not managers? Um, Ed, your thoughts? Well, it would be it would be very controversial. Um, and I, I think that's a good idea, actually. Um Anything that, you know, makes clubs think a little bit more about what they're doing and not just sacking a manager so, you know, so quickly into the season. I mean, this in this case, we're talking about the record spend in a, in a summer transfer window given to a manager. And, and especially in this situation where uh, Tuchel had such an influence on the players that arrived uh, at, at Chelsea. Um, but yet to be, for him to be sacked so soon... After the end of the transfer, you know, seven seven games into the season, it's just it's quite crazy, really. I know this is Chelsea we're talking about, um, but yeah, I think I think that uh, for, for Brighton, it's going to be really difficult to recover. It's not just Potter who's going; it's five members of his staff, and you know, and it's it's really gutting for them. You know, they're doing so well, absolutely flying uh, under him, and it's going to be difficult for them to recover from this in. You know, seven games into the season, they've got to go out and find somebody new, a whole new staff. You know, just even for the next couple of weeks, uh, some somebody to take the team uh, while they're trying to find that replacement. It's it's really tough for them. Um, but you know, I think Chelsea wanted to be ruthless. Uh, the new owners wanted to show that they're you know they're serious and uh, they weren't going to stand for any of um, you know Tuchel's tantrums. Really, I think the, the Tottenham game was the was a big moment for him. They, they played pretty well in that game. But the way that he acted afterwards, I was actually watching the the video, the handshake a couple of times and just rewinding it. And it's like a sort of spinning top, that, that moment of, of aggression where he holds on for that bit too long and, you know, realises that, uh, Conte realises what's happening. That was a real sort of unravelling of, of Tuchel with hindsight at that moment. And since then, you know, it kind of, it all just happened very, very quickly. Although I think most people were, were pretty surprised that, that he was sacked when he was. I suppose a transfer window for managers would mean that it'd be great news to sort of Alan Kirbishly and managers who aren't in work. Because if you did sack your manager, you wouldn't be able to go and get one who's managing at another club. John does says, how can us Albion fans be irate about Chelsea doing a loads of money and ripping the guts out of our club when that money will go directly to the club that Albion decide they want to rip the guts out of. Yeah, the new favourite, Barry, is the Bodo Glimt manager, Kshetil Knutsen. And uh, Lars would be better to ask than you. But like, I've seen Bodo Glimt play. And actually, I think that, that feels exactly what Brighton would do. Yeah, I mean, I would expect Brighton have probably planned for this contingency because they just seem a remarkably well-run club. And they will have known that Graham Potter would would be in demand, uh, either from England or from one of the other bigger clubs. So I I would be very surprised if they don't have a short list immediately to hand of managers they would like to get. I'm not going to profess to know a thing about Mister Nutson. I, I I suspect the succession at Brighton may not be as problematic as as um, some think. 
Well, I saw Bodo Glimp tear Celtic apart last season when I fully expected Celtic to hammer them in the uh, Europa League uh, or the conference, I forget which one. And uh, they were really played really, really brilliant football. And I think they were in pre-season. They hadn't, you know, they hadn't played an actual game. Um, I think it could be quite a shrewd signing. Wasn't it them who eviscerated Roma, Roma yeah, as well? Yeah, Roma as well. Yeah. Uh, Pete says, with Graham Potter getting the Chelsea job, can you please use your crystal ball work out who you think the next up and coming manager to get a job at one of the big six will be? Well, he says, please note Gerard to Liverpool doesn't count. Might be surprised now if Gerard does go to Liverpool. Wilson, I think the next up and coming, what's the next big six job that's going to be available, and who's who up and coming is going to get it? Or do you think it'll be just, you know, Spurs or Conte will go and they'll just go and get another big name? Well, there's not many, there's not many jobs go to British managers. Um, yeah, without meaning to sound like Sam Allardyce. <laughs> I mean, Steve Cooper, you'd assume is sort of near the top of that short speed. We might get a job. Where, you know, where would he, where would he go to? Do we think Klopp might conceivably be Edging towards a brink, possibly. Not really. I I think he might be. I mean, if if there's another month of this, possibly. But I think a lot depends on him, right? You know, so the season before last, they were had a pretty poor season, and the owners were were happy to kind of stick with him. And last season, they were two games from winning a quadruple. So, you know, I, I think of all managers, he, he you know he 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 has the the right to have a blip and and try and come out the other side of it. It's whether he feels exhausted by it. Uh, I think rather than whether the club might get rid of him. Uh, I don't know is the answer. Lots of emails that we had in, so I'll just do a few of those. Mike says, who knew Hector Bellerin played for Barcelona? I don't know if it's just me, but a number of transfers seem to go under the radar these days. That or I don't follow transfer window updates like I used to. Avid listener and pod fan Mike. Barry, did it pass you by? Are you fully on board Hector Bellerin taking a pay cut and being a hero? I was aware that uh, Hector had gone to Barcelona, yes. Congratulations. Um, Andy says, which team's are best positioned to benefit from the World Cup? Uh, it isn't just about resting, but essentially gives managers a second pre-season with any players not going. Has anyone done any, Ed, have you done any research into this? I know I've thrown this at you at short notice. Not essentially, but I mean, I can talk I can talk about Crystal Palace. I know that they don't have many. Please do. Yeah, well, no, that's what everyone wants to hear about. No, I mean, certain, yeah, certainly uh, it's obvious the teams that have got more players in the World Cup, you'd have thought, will struggle, generally. But um, in terms of, well, um, but it's actually Arsenal quite interesting, aren't they? Because none of the Gabriels um, from the uh, from Arsenal got into the Brazil squad, I believe the latest one. So if they aren't going to the World Cup, that could be absolutely massive for Arsenal. And, you know, it's the last squad before teams make their selection um, for Qatar. So that could be quite a good guide that, you know, Gabriel Jesus, Gabriel, the defender, and Gabriel Martinelli are all going to be at home resting, ready for the second part of the season. Is Jesus not in the Brazil squad? Because Richarlison is, isn't he? That's right, yeah, they're the last one. I remember. Yeah, Richarlison in. I mean, Holland obviously will. Um, so, you know, who, who knows what you could do rested <laughs> after such a disappointing start to the season. <laughs> Alex says, I'll carry on. Uh, and then Salomon... Well, Salah and Diaz won't be there either. So Liverpool, yeah, they're, they're two wide men. Uh, yeah. Well, we'll have a rest. That's, that could be really important for Salah, especially he's not had much of a rest. He's been, uh, really, been really poor this season, hasn't he? And perhaps that would... Well, he's been person's combinations, really. Yeah, exactly. Carlos Kier has destroyed yeah. him. 
And Carlos Queiroz is back, isn't he? At Iran. Carlos Queiroz is yeah, the yeah. new Iran manager, and obviously yeah. they're going to play England in the in the World Cup. But that'll be an absolutely <laughs> desperate, tedious, yeah. awful game of football. <laughs> it will. Put, put your money on a nil-nil. <laughs> uh, I mean, I haven't started looking at the group, and you know, I'm sort of nervous that you know the Americans might do us actually. Um, anyway, Alex says hi, Pod. Love the weekly football rambling. Um, sounds like another pod to me. Uh, hopefully the following will ease Barry's mind. Every time Southampton get discussed, this is true. Barry always wonders if Ralph Hasenhutl is good. Yep. <laughs> it's one of your stock lines. As a Southampton fan, I hope I can address this. In summary, we don't know either. Most of the fan... <laughs> Most of the fan base is in favour. However, every time we go on a classic Southampton mid-season dry spell, hashtag Ralph out creeps. But most of the fans are behind him, especially the ones in the stadium. No one really knows why he goes hot and cold. It could be down to his tactics being more reactive than proactive. However, his clear love and dedication to the club buys him time to fall back on, which he usually uses each season. Lastly, if Ralph was sacked, who could we get in as a better manager? Hopefully this helps Barry sleep at night. Love the pod. Thanks again, Alex. Well, I can't stress enough that Rav Hasenhutl's qualities as a manager don't keep me awake at night. But I, I genuinely don't know whether or not he's a good football manager. He gets some excellent results, but Southampton blows so hot and cold. It must be quite frustrating. And their run at the end of last season was diabolically bad. But apparently he has the absolute backing of the owners. Uh, and rather than get rid of him during the summer, they brought in... They, revamped his coaching staff I don't doubt he seems a very nice guy I'd quite happily have a few pints with him but at what stage Barry would you at what stage Barry would you uh, would you finally you know get off the Hasenhutl fence and decide whether he is good or bad what does Southampton have to do well they have to I don't know string a win of a run of wins together uh, maybe win something you know go deep into the cup but blimey I do, it is funny that that's my only line on Ralph Hasenhutl, but I want someone to convince me that he's good. Prove it to me. I have to say I enjoyed it. I went to see them against Arsenal um, early in the season and, and he was wearing suit, a suit, trainers and no socks on the touchline. We're very good. And he on, at that game, I had the impression that he didn't care <laughs> whether he got sacked. Uh, he just, they, he, the way that they, they went one nil up and then they just fell apart and... But then since then, they've had some, some great results. And I just wanted to say about Southampton, they, they've made a good signing in the summer, which was uh, they brought a guy in from Man City as their head of recruitment, uh, Joe Shields, who has brought a lot of the younger players, set up, did a lot at City with the youth setup, And he, they recruited really well in the summer. Some players that, you know, obviously everyone is talking about Lavia a little bit, who Chelsea tried to buy on the final day of the transfer window, even though Southampton had just bought him. Oh, did they? That's harsh, isn't it? Can't do that. They bought him earlier in the summer for 20 million, I think, from City, and then Chelsea offered about 50, which was turned down. And yeah, Joe Shields has, has, knows his onions and has bought in a couple of great young players there. And uh, yeah, so that's that's probably what keeps Ralph going, you know, that they've got these, these gems uh, that they keep picking up and then selling for a profit. Shame Chelsea didn't get to spend any cash then without that signing just before the uh, the deadline. Um, Simeon says, Hi team, when did faking injuries become so common in football and where did it originate? Is it worse now than ever because of VAR? How do we get rid of it or do enough people even care? 
doesn't happen in other sports to this level. Please tell Barry I've also shat my pants in Germany. Luckily, it was at Oktoberfest and not on public transport. Love the pod. Cheers, Simeon. Um, is this unique to football, Wilson? It sort of feels like. I'd never really thought about it, but it feels like it is quite unique to football. I mean, obviously wrestling. I mean, I feel like, I feel like WWF really, it really happens quite a lot in wrestling. I, I, well, I think certainly if you compare it to say rugby, I think it's the opposite that in, in rugby, because you can get treatment on the pitch because essentially, mm, you know, you, you don't, I mean, obviously you can have rapid counterattacks in rugby, but the, it, it's quite easy to avoid somebody who's getting treatment, which in football, I just don't think it would be. So if you're trying to waste time, which, which is where, where I think it's problematic is, you know, the last 10, 15 minutes of games where, where players constantly going down, breaking up the rhythm of the game, eating into, into the time available. The, the, the reason it works is that you have to stop the game to let somebody on because you can't have somebody playing people on side or getting in the way of counterattacks. So it's it's the 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 swiftness with which a game can move from one side of the pitch to the other that's, that's problematic. Couldn't you couldn't you say physios can come on the pitch and then they don't count in offsides? Maybe, maybe, yeah. I mean, I I, I wonder. Yeah, I mean, I think you'd have to do some pretty rigorous testing of that as to whether there was advantages in creating blockages in certain areas. I mean, if you had a player go down in your own D so that basically... You... And you had a massive physio. Like a, yeah. really enormous <laughs> With an physio. enormous medical bag. <laughs> um, <laughs> so I mean, that, that, that would be the danger. But I mean, I, I agree. It's, uh, it, it, it is, it is a, it is a frustration. Uh, I think as well, I mean, um, African football had a real problem with this. When would it, I think, so 2008, 2010 was the nadir of it, where if a team was 1-0 up with 10 minutes to go, they won the game 1-0 because nothing would happen in the last 10, 20 minutes of games. And that's presumably, a, I don't know if it's referees not being strict enough, I don't know if it's a cultural thing, but that that that, that, and that has improved, I think, at the Cup of Nations. I think football's generally got a problem and is starting to accept it's got a problem with with time wasting, killing the game. Yeah, but referees don't put enough time on. I wrote an article about this. There is one from the South African League, one of the funniest bits of time wasting. I don't know if you've seen it, where the team of two went up, they get a corner, and a bloke just stands over the corner for about a mi- you know 30 seconds. It feels like hours, and he gets booked. So he just wanders off, and someone else sits, lines up to take the corner, and he stands there. <laughs> He gets booked, and then someone else does, and then eventually the guy who originally got booked goes and takes the corner. But it's just—it is. I must admit, you know, you know, it gets infuriating. This is absolutely sensational and can only be applauded, frankly. Um, anyway, that'll do for part two. Part three. Uh, any other business? Welcome to part three of the Guardian Football Weekly. Matt says, what exactly is a counter-attack? Wilson, you got a lot of criticism after saying Manchester United scored a goal on the counter against Arsenal when they'd had 18 passes. A lot of people had said there were 18 passes between the players. Um, Will, I think it was Wilson who called on Man, called all Man United's goals against Arsenal counter-attacks, but they were all quite different. Is it just goals against a very high line? Or is it about transitions? Well, football has an issue with terminological inexactitude. So, okay, before we define what a counter-attack is, what is an attack? What is attacking football? Who are you asking that? Anybody. I'm I'm being... This is the Socratic method where I ask you questions rather than answering them. When you're trying to score a goal, 
Very good. Good. From, I'll put okay. it on the whiteboard. This is what I feel like. Yes. We're in. Okay. But, but, but what if your way of scoring a goal is to sit deep, let the opposition have a yeah. ball, uh, take the ball off them, and then try and score in two or three passes down the pitch? Is that when does the attack begin? When, you, when you've won possession? Yes. So would you call that attacking football? No, that's counter. That's Conte. That's counter attacking football. Okay. But so a counter attack is not a subdivision of attack. Yes, it's a subdivision of attack. So Barry at the back of the class saying "fuck all" as usual. So in 2010, the way yeah. uh, Yogi Löw's Germany played, uh, when they beat, well, they put four past England, put four past Argentina. How mm. would you categorise their football? I can't remember. I was in a cinema in Cuba. That was that was counter attacking, wasn't it? Well, it, it they, was. They but they I, remember, I remember getting a load of abuse then for saying it was counter attacking. People go, "Oh, it's going eight goals." <laughs> <laughs> so, okay, when when Lou Van Gaal was at Manchester United, how would you categorise that football? I can't remember. It was slow and boring, wasn't it? They just took too many touches and went, you know, kept possession, possession, possession base. Well, Louis Van Gaal would tell you that his, his football was attacking football because his team had the ball and therefore were proactive. And he would criticise uh, Solskjaer's football, for instance, as being defensive football because they tend to sit deep Try and win the ball back. I just think the word attack doesn't have any meaning. I think I think it's a thing people sort of toss out there. It means nothing, uh, and therefore counter attack probably also means nothing. Are there are there more than two? I mean, there are more than two ways of playing football, right? But it's either if we're talking about the top teams, it's either you have the ball, you have a lot of possession. You're obviously you're capable of doing both, but you have a lot of possession and you try and break down a team that are probably sitting deeper. So that's what Manchester City do, and then you have a Tottenham, which is don't really necessarily care if they have the ball that much, but when they do, they break. And I would say one is possession football and one is counter-attacking football then. Okay. I mean, I, I wouldn't disagree with that, yeah. I just think the, 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 the word attack is is sort of, it's loaded with these moral connotations that aren't particularly useful. Because I think often, mm -hmm. maybe less so Guardiola, but, but that you know, certainly Spain in 2010, 2012, were criticised for being pretty sterile and pretty boring for holding possession. So possession mm. football doesn't necessarily equal attacking football. It can equal defensive football because he's holding the ball and keeping it from the opposition. But that is quite interesting, I guess. When when a, you know if a team scores lots of goals, then you don't really you just presume they're just being attacking because you can't score yeah. without attacking. So okay, with Manchester United, I, I suppose what I meant was there were goals against a high line, which I guess yeah, it, it, it's reasonable to, to object they aren't necessarily all counter attacks. But yes, in 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 on the spur of the moment, trying to sum up the type of goal they were scoring. It's goals against a high line. Eugene says, any thoughts on Philip Lahm's concerns about going to the corner? I'm not convinced it's a problem. This is an article in The Guardian, Ed, where Philip Lahm was talking about uh, the Lionesses winning the Euros and at the end um, going, taking the ball into the corner, which is a great part of football, and saying maybe we could change the laws of the game. We had the back pass rule. That made football better. This would make football better. Do you think this is just sour grapes from Lahm? What, that you couldn't take the ball into the corner to waste a bit of time? Yeah. No, 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 that no, I like that. And Jordan Ayew yeah. is one of the best at that. <laughs> he really is. He really is. And that's not a sentence you say very often. <laughs> it's quite hard to get caught offside doing that, I suppose. Isn't it? <laughs> yeah. I mean, if there was a goal awarded for keeping it, you know, say you kept it in the corner for a two minutes without it going out of play and the other player getting it and you got a goal, he would be top scorer in the league. It's quite a difficult skill. It is. You need a really good upper body strength. Well, you that's need what big, he has. The sort of buttocks, don't you? It's all and about, big buttocks. Yeah, I yeah. haven't checked 
Jordan Ayers, but that's, you know, Viduka would clearly, I don't recall him doing it, but he would be the absolute king of it. Mark Hughes, um, if he ever needed to do it. Actually, I mean, I know love it. I know people love it. Amateur footballers listening will know it is, it's the most you can ever feel like a professional footballer because that doesn't happen at pace. But obviously at Sunday league level, when you do it, you know what's coming. <laughs> it's a, a big lump going right through the back of you. Mackie says, after watching Michael Sheen's pre-match team talk for the next uh, Wales-England game, what would Barry say to inspire Ireland versus England in their next game? Not scheduled, I know. It is, it is brilliant. A lot of that, a league of their own, I sort of find a bit bantery, but that was absolutely brilliant, wasn't it? Yeah, uh, for anyone who hasn't seen it, it's a clip doing the rounds of the Welsh actor Michael Sheen. I, I guess it's off the cuff, um, giving this incredible, rousing pre-match team talk, uh, just from behind a desk in a in a TV studio. And I'm not Welsh, but I'd have run through a wall for him after hearing <laughs> that. And I'm certainly not going to attempt to emulate it now that you've sprung it on me because you just can't follow that. But. Nice. Um, yeah, it's really good fun being Wales, a Wales fan at the moment. I'm quite envious of them. I think I've said that before, but yeah, they, they, they've got a, got it sorted nicely. You're allowed to repeat yourself. Um, Chris says, a bit niche. Can Ed talk about the Kosafer Cup that's been going on, please? Yeah, well, it's actually, yeah, it came to an end yesterday. And Zambia, uh, this is the women's Kosafer Cup. Right. Because uh, the, the men's edition happened earlier in the summer which Zambia also won. So it's a Zambian double. So what is, the, what is this? What, how is this different to AFCON? What is this? It's the Council of Southern African Football Associations, okay. Kosovo. And well, for instance, with South Africa, who won the women's AFCON early in the summer while England were winning the Euros, uh, it's South Africa, who were the hosts for the Kosovo Cup, but they, they fielded their second string. It's often, well, I mean, with the men, it's always the local local based players. Although South Africa have pretty much only got locally based players these days, but yeah, great for Zambia, and it's it's just showing that the the strength of uh, women's football in South Africa is is spreading. Um, the person who scored the winner is Barbara Banda, um, and she scored. She did really well in the World Cup. I mean, though Zambia didn't make it through the group stages, but she she's a real real superstar of women's football in Africa. Owen says, now that Cristiano Ronaldo has proudly posted photos with his friend, cuddly Jordan Peterson, will others follow suit? Lionel Messi and David Icke at Laser Quest? Phil Babb and Alex Jones at a Christa Burr concert, for instance. Um, I don't know enough about Jordan Peterson. Does anyone know enough about Jordan Peterson? Well, I know, I think we were going travelling somewhere to do a pod on our international travels, a live show, and without having the foggiest idea who Jordan Peterson was, I bought his book just for something to read <laughs> in the airport and was the subject of a lot of ridicule from my peers. <laughs> so much so that I think I just ended up throwing it in the bin what I heard, when I heard what a terrible man he is. But I'm not completely sure what Jordan, Peterson, or Jordan Peterson's story is, but apparently he's not, not a very savoury man. Is it what a right wing weirdo of some description? Um, anyway, big friends with Cristiano. Um, Stephen says, lads, I'm doing the opposite to a Max Rushton. I'm moving to London from Australia. Kids have flown the coop, and it's the missus' turn to spend some time in the UK where she's originally from. As I'm moving to Southwark, the tip recently on the pod about Dulwich Hamlet is fantastic. 
I'm going to jump on their bandwagon. I think they, they manager. They let go their manager uh, this week after many years in charge. I believe mm. well, um, isn't it my, Kevin Rose. Is Gavin, it? Rose. Gavin Rose. Mm. Gavin Rose. Yeah, after thirteen yeah. years. Yeah. Yeah, it's a very sad day. Uh, my question is to Jonathan Wilson. I need a low-key cricket team along the same lines to follow, preferably in the greater London area. Please help. Um, keep up the great work. Been following the pod for 12 years. Uh, so many things to experience in the UK, but I have my sights set on a Christmas live show, praying my Christmas wish comes true. It probably will. Uh, we'll let you know more when we book a venue that we can fill. Uh, a cricket team, Wilson. Well, he, he wants a low-key cricket team to follow, as in to go and watch. I guess so. Well, just go and watch Surrey. I mean, Surrey's not exactly... The county championship is not high-key. <laughs> <Yeah. laughs> Southwark seems ideally located for that. So just go and watch Surrey. Go and watch Surrey. Uh, Greg says, um, when discussing inoffensive detective TV shows, you continuously overlook the absolute greatest of them all, Jonathan Creek. I've let it slide for too long, and it's time to demand answers on this blatant anti-Creek agenda. should note, uh, one Arsenal fan was very upset with how much time we spent discussing Death in Paradise when I had casually brushed off their VAR, Martinelli's VAR goal. I think he called me a twat. But anyway, <laughs> anyway uh, Jonathan Creek, Wilson? Well, I think the reason we don't talk about it is that it's just not on anymore, is it? Uh, I, I think... It was a bit up and down, but I think it's good episodes were, were, were pretty good. And I thought those Christmas specials I kept doing were, well, they were the key part of the Christmas programme for me. I, I occasionally play five-a-side football with Alan Davis so I could ask him to bring it back. I've got a man on the inside. But is it, is it not some story that he slightly resents having done it, that he kind of regrets how much yeah, that, that sort of dominated the rest of his career? I mean, most of our conversation is, Give it feet, Alan. <laughs> you know, they're not sort of mid-game going. You know, is is you know, is this your sit down by James, Alan? How do you feel about the legacy of Jonathan Creek? Would you do it all again? I just watched an uh, an episode of what, what's the the one I don't really like, Wilson. That you McDonald and Dodds. Dodds. McDonald and Dodds, in which Alan Davis was one of the lead guest lead characters. And I would venture to say it was considerably worse than any episode of Jonathan Creek <laughs> I've ever seen. I, I think you're totally off the radar here, Barry. It's absolutely, we devoured McDonald's and Dodds. Uh, Mark says, not a question, but thank you to Jonathan Wilson for stopping to speak to me mid-run this morning. It spurred me on through the last few miles of my own run and last long one pre-London marathon. Obviously forgot to say at the time, huge fan of the pod. Cheers, guys. Uh, making dreams come true there, Jonathan. Yeah, I was, uh, I have to say, I was struggling a bit, uh, 10K into a 15K run, and I was going up the hill past Leicester Hospital, and then I, my prayers were answered when some bloke running past the opposite direction said hello, so I had an excuse to stop for 30 seconds. Um, <laughs> now, the problem was that I'd uh, I'd had more than I intended to drink the previous day, and I'm 46 and really unfit, but mm. it was it was not a, not a happy run yesterday. There was a time early in my jogging career when people would stop and ask me for directions, which is when you know you're really slow. Um, but not to be outdone, Barry, who stopped you? Someone skateboarding. You were at a skateboard park. What? Well, there's <laughs> one of the best skate parks in the UK, arguably the best, I'm told, right. is more or less at the end of my street. So I was en route to the shop yesterday uh, to get some supplies, and uh, a bloke was leaning against the wall. Uh, you know, had his board, and uh, he he recognised me, and we st I stopped for a chat. So he was a Scottish bloke, 
um, who had been to one of our live shows in Glasgow and he was down to try out it's, the, the skate park's recently been redesigned and rebuilt so he was down to try that out and uh, so I tweeted to the effect that because I said to him I, I didn't think we'd have many listeners in the skateboarder community <laughs> because due to the proximity of the skate park and my local pub there's a lot of skaters in there none of them seem particularly interested in football all they're interested in is vandalizing the beer garden with uh, spray paint and smoking weed but this guy is interested in football he's also interested in skating so i i tweeted to the effect that i had met the intersection of the venn diagram of people who <laughs> like skateboarding and people who like football weekly and then stuart braithwaite from mogwai uh, said that he also likes skateboarding and football weekly so i i told him to to bring his board next time Maguire are playing uh, Brixton Academy as he'll be able to try out our new facility. If you introduce professional violinists into that Venn diagram... Mm. Yes, I was about to say the same thing. <laughs> if you are a professional violinist who... If, if Tony Hawk... Is it Tony Hawks? Who's the who's the skateboarder? Tony Hawks, yeah. Tony Hawks. Yeah. Not the comedian. Not the comedian the who went Ireland with a fridge. But if any of the Tony Hawkses do get in touch. Um, <laughs> just a note uh, that Mark Langdon did indeed, instead of saying hyperbole, say hyperbole. I let it slide. I so don't know did why. I. You know? But the reason I let it slide is because I used to pronounce it hyperbole as well until someone <laughs> corrected me. And I felt quite ashamed. I, I, I found myself going back in my mind all the times I'd used the word incorrectly. Uh, and it, mm. I'd say, I wish someone had pulled me up on it earlier. So maybe we mm. should have said something to him. You see, I, I did this in the other direction because I read loads of Greek myths when I was a kid and I had an audiobook of Greek myths. So I, I was very sort of on top of Greek pronunciation. So Sunderland's nickname before they became the Black Cats in 1997 was Rokerites. But I'd only ever seen it written down. And I thought it was for Kerites. Anyway, I did let it slide. A bit like I let downloadable ink slide from you, Barry. And uh, I did wake up on Friday morning before doing the Europa League for Australian television and tweeted immediately about downloadable ink without seeing the news. And so that tweet was sat alongside a lot of other tweets about slightly more serious news that had just broken that I wasn't aware of. Um, anyway, uh, that'll do for today's podcast. Uh, thank you for your time, Ed. Thank you, Max. Thank you, Jonathan. Cheers, thank you. Thanks, Barry. Ta. We'll be back on Wednesday where there's actual football to discuss. Football Weekly was produced by Joel Grove. Our executive producer is Danielle Stevens. This is The Guardian.